I didn't, that's really the real-life Mission Impossible. Uh, what they did, how they managed to get uh, the 12 boys and their coach out. Um, if you know anything about the effort and cost of this operation, um, 10,000 people were involved. 10,000 people. That's over 100 divers, many rescue workers, representatives from over 100 government agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, 7 police ambulances, more than 700 oxygen diving cylinders, and the pumping of more than a billion liters of water out of the caves. And of course, it cost one life. Was it worth it? All of that effort, all of that cost, was it worth it? Well, of course it was. If you look at the photo, can you go to the next slide? Of two people around them, brothers and sisters who were led through their example to do the same, but these brothers and sisters had weaker consciences. They had conscience issues because they couldn't feel comfortable eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. So you remember that. That was last week. 1 Corinthians 8 starts that issue. Next week, we'll see that 1 Corinthians 10 will conclude that issue. And it almost seems as if 1 Corinthians 9, smack bang in the middle, is sort of a little bit off topic, isn't it? Because he doesn't mention anything about food sacrifice idols here. It's mostly about Paul and the way that he does ministry, his work of the gospel. So is it on topic? Is he just kind of gone off tangent? No, no, no. If you look closely enough, you'll actually see that chapter 9 is actually the principle of chapter 8 and chapter 10 applied. It's a bit like a sandwich, and we, we often see sandwich structures in the Bible, if you're familiar. We often talk about that. You've got the bread on both sides and the meat in the middle, and it's the meat in the middle that's the most important, right? 8 and 10 are the, sa- the, the bread. Chapter 9 is actually the meat in the middle. So what's happening here is really, really important. And this is why Paul begins the chapter with these kind of rhetorical questions about his freedom and his rights. Do I not have freedom? Do I not have rights? Because he wants to show that in his life and in his work and in his priorities, that he would gladly set aside all of his freedoms, all of his rights for the sake of others, which is what the Corinthians weren't doing. And he would do it because of the one thing, of the thing that matters the most. So what I'm not going to do, we're not going to look at the first 18 verses in detail. I really want to concentrate on 19 to 23, but um, I'll just give you the key ideas of what he's saying here. What freedoms and rights is he giving up? Well, have a look at verse 13. Here's the summary verses. Verse 13. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what's offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. This is the key chunk, right? He's talking about his right to receive financial support for doing the work he does as a missionary, as a pastor, as an evangelist, as an apostle. It's what we do. It's what you do for people like myself and Stephen and Dom who get supported as your pastors. And it's what we do for Carrie and Heidi, what we'll do for them, what we do for John and Becky so that they and their families can do this full time and not have to earn a living outside of that. Now, Paul, see what he's saying? Like other gospel workers, he has a right to be supported like that. But, he says, I choose not to use that right. And instead, what Paul did for most of his uh, ministry life is he did essentially a tradies job, a blue-collar job. He made tents. And he did that in the day so that he could support himself and do ministry free of charge 
in his spare time. Now, why did he do that? Well, the second half of verse 12, look there, second half of verse 12. He says, But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Okay, we need to be careful not to over-apply. As if you're only a really holy gospel worker if you give up your right like Paul did. Okay, I'm not saying that. See, what he's saying here is somehow for him to have taken money from the Corinthians would actually have hindered his ministry. Now, why is that? Why would taking money from them support, like I, I get supported by you, that actually adds to my ministry, doesn't hinder it. What was it for Paul that actually hindered it? Well, let me explain to you. In the Roman world, in places like Corinth, there was a system of patronage. In other words, you would take money, particularly from rich people, and by taking money from them, you're expected to return favors and advance their interests. It's a little bit like if you do business in Asian countries, right? You get taken out for a dinner. You get gifts. It's not no strings attached, is it? Right? There's obligations. Now, that's fine in business world. That's fine in Roman world. But you can imagine if that happened in church ministry, that would be a disaster, wouldn't it? Suddenly, you've got to do what the people who pay you to do do want you to do. And Paul refused to be tied down to this patronage idea, private interests. And so he gladly set aside his rights so that it wouldn't affect the preaching of the gospel. And that comes to the key principle of this whole chapter. That is, as I said before, for Paul, the work of the gospel is his one thing, the most important thing. I'll come to that in point number two. But I want you to know here that Paul, by setting aside his right to financial support, is not just the money he sets aside, but there's actually two attached rights. That's arguably harder. I mean, money is one thing, right? It's, it's about earning a living. It's about having... But he actually, there's two things tied to it that, I, that we mustn't miss. And these two things actually are things that we find harder to give up. The first thing he gives up by giving up his right for support is comfort. Comfort and ease. Because he gave up his right to be supported by others, he had to work harder. Let me just give you an indication of what that is. Um, have a look at the screen, 2 Thessalonians 3. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden, a financial burden, he says, to any of you. Now, in Thessalonians, in, in that church, it's probably he did it for a different reason. The reason why he didn't take support from them was because they were really, really poor. And so, in Corinth, there were poor people with more money. He didn't take money from them because he didn't want to be, you know, subject to their patronage. In places like Thessalonica, he chose to work because they didn't have any money. But you see, that meant that he had to give up comfort. He had to work harder. The second thing he had to give up, a right that he gave up, is prestige and respect. You see, Paul earned a living by doing the job of a laborer. This is not what university, postgraduate, educated class people did. He had to work with his hands. Now, in Corinth, you've got to understand, the top teachers received lots of money. And they would never have to work, especially the work of a laborer. If you had to work to support yourself, and especially the work of a blue-collar laborer, then in the Corinthians' eyes, you were no good as a teacher. All right? And that's what Paul had to give up, the right to prestige, the right to respect. 
Now, I, I mentioned those two things, the, the, giving them the right to comfort and the right to respect or the right to prestige, because I think that's going to be what's hard for us to give up, isn't it? I mean, you think about yourself. How often would you, me, comfortable, middle-class Australians, how often do we hold back from sacrificing for Jesus because of those two things? The right to be comfort, comfortable. The right to have our own pleasure and our own leisure. The right to have our own time, our own stuff. How often would we give that up, sacrifice it? Or, or, or the right to respect, to be thought well of, to have prestige, to have people look up to you. I mean, when was the last time I really sacrificed my happiness and my pleasures, my comfort, for the sake of the gospel? Or, or being willing to look foolish, take a step down in other people's opinion, in status, in prestige, for the sake of the gospel. Do you see? These rights that Paul so easily gave up, they've actually become idols, particularly for us middle-class people. My friend uh, Dominic, uh, decades ago, he was a young uh, journalist working in radio, and uh, he was not a Christian. Uh, there was, uh, working with him, a very senior, well-respected radio announcer and journalist named Russell, who was a Christian. And Russell invited Dominic to investigate Jesus by asking Dominic to come with him to church. And Dominic, being the young 20-something-year-old guy, um, said, okay, yeah, why not? I'll come along with you. Except he would not turn up, right? He'd say to Russell, yep, I'll be there this Sunday and not turn up. And now that happens a number of weeks uh, to the degree where, and, and Russell would never hound him about it. He'd just keep asking Dominic, would you like to come this week? And Dominic would go, yeah, 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 I'll come. And then he'd not turn up. This happened a few weeks. Finally, Dominic thought, I probably should turn up. I mean, Russell is senior and, you know, someone I respect and He's invited me lots of times. So he did turn up, except that week that he went, he came about half an hour later. And so as he came into church, Russell's church, he found that Russell was waiting outside of church for him. And then Dominic finally tweaked. It meant that every single week that he didn't turn up, Russell was there waiting outside of church for Dominic, even though he didn't turn up. And he just kept doing it. And because of that, Dominic began to investigate Christianity more seriously, and he came to know Jesus. I mean, it's just one example, isn't it? Where someone was willing to take a step back in their right to be comfortable. Take a step back even in terms of their right to be respected. He was the more senior, he was the more respected journalist, and yet he was willing to become a servant for the sake of someone's salvation. And I wonder if we're willing to do that. You see, Paul's life was all about giving up his rights for the sake of that one thing, the gospel. Now, we're going to go to the key verses to see that flesh out. So point number two, verses 19 to 23, we're going to focus the rest of our time on this. Verse 19. Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became the weak in order to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Now, 
Paul's ministry philosophy, if you like, it's a fancy way of saying the way that he did his work of serving Jesus and the gospel, his ministry philosophy, is what we call contextualization. I haven't really heard that word. Contextualization, it's a big, important missionary work term. Contextualization is doing everything you can to build bridges to the people that you're trying to reach. Now, Paul did that. He understood that there are many barriers, aren't there, to a person receiving and accepting the good news of Jesus. I mean, the main barriers are ones that are spiritual, due to sin, due to spiritual blindness, and we know from the Bible that's God's job. But there's also other barriers, aren't there? There's racial barriers, there's language barriers, there's cultural barriers, there's contextual barriers. And Paul wanted to make sure that he minimized those barriers, and so he kept wanting to build bridges to them. Now, how he applied it, um, as you see from those verses, is particularly with Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. Now, Paul was a Jew, but he was a Christian, which meant that he no longer had to live under the Jewish food laws because Jesus frees you from that. No longer did he have to live under the circumcision laws, even though he was circumcised, or the cleanliness laws and all the kind of other things that Jews did. He no longer had to live under it. But, do you see what he did? When he was trying to reach Jews who weren't yet Christians, he would make sure that he would adhere to those laws. So, he even had his co-worker, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was, uh, his mom was a Jew, his dad wasn't. And when he brought Timothy along with him on his missionary journeys, the first thing he had Timothy do was to get circumcised. Poor Timothy. But... Um, the, the point is, he didn't have to do this, but he wanted to make sure there were no obstacles so that Timothy, with him, could go and minister effectively to Jews. All right, so he did that. He would observe all the cleanliness laws, all the kosher laws. But what about when he was trying to reach non-Jews, which was a huge part of also his ministry? Well, then he would set aside all those things. He would eat non-kosher foods. He would go to a Gentile's house and eat with them. Potentially, a Gentile who actually may have sacrificed the food to idols prior to serving the food at his house. Right? But he, he did it. He didn't all do all the Jewish ceremonial stuff like the washings. He partnered with uncircumcised Gentiles. So he, he didn't make all of his co-workers get circumcised like Timothy. A bunch of them he worked with who probably were not circumcised. To best reach non-Jews, he became as much like them as possible. Do you see what he's doing? That's called contextualization. Now, was this easy? course not. Like, imagine how much this would have put a target on his back. You do this and you're not going to be popular with either groups, yeah? And especially Paul was not popular with the Orthodox Jews, right? Because they saw him being a Gentile to reach the Gentiles. And in the book of Acts, we know that becomes the basis for their intense hatred of Paul. They try to kill Paul because of it. And the extent of his sacrifice is, look what he says. He actually says, Verse 19, he makes himself a slave. He calls himself a slave. Now, in the Jewish world, the world is divided in two, Jews or Gentiles, okay? In the non-Jewish world, in the Roman world, the world was also divided in two. It was free and slaves. Paul was free. He's not a slave. In fact, Paul was so privileged, he was actually, even though he was a Jew, he was a Roman citizen. That is not easily obtained in the Roman world. He was a Roman citizen, free. But you see here, he's willing to be a slave. 
He's willing to serve others. He's willing to set aside all of his privileges and rights as a freedman, as a Roman citizen, if it best serves others. Why does he do that? Now, it's important to note here, Paul does all of this not because he's bowing to social pressure or peer pressure. This is what we do often. Sometimes people use this as an excuse to say, I'm going to be as much like my non-Christian friends as possible. Go to the parties they go to, drink what they drink, you know, do what they do, because I'm trying to be all things to all people. No, that's just called bowing to social pressure, all right? That's just called peer pressure. That's not why Paul's doing it. He's doing it for one thing, one reason, not to make people happy, but to make God happy. And look at verse 22. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. See, Paul is not bending to be a people pleaser. He only cares about the gospel. That's his one thing. And why does the gospel call for such radical giving up of rights, radical contextualization? Well, if you understand the good news of Jesus, it's because the gospel, the good news itself, is the ultimate contextualization and sacrifice, isn't it? The gospel is about God who became man. And you want to talk about contextualization, there it is. God builds a bridge to us by becoming one of us. You want to talk about sacrificing rights. God, in Jesus, gave up his life and dies for our sins in our place. He becomes a slave for us. Do you see why contextualization, giving up rights, is at the core of the gospel? Now, we've got to be careful here. This is not about bending and flexing on everything, right? There are boundaries. Remember the context of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Paul, remember last week, he says, look, you're free to eat. Have a look at the slide. But keep in mind three things. Make sure you're running away from sin. Make sure you don't cause others to stumble by leading them into doing something against their conscience. And what we're looking at this week, make sure it's helping, not hindering evangelism. See, Paul is clearly not going to, in context, be telling people to compromise so much that you'll fall into sin or lead others into sin. Right? It's not without boundaries. There's not no exceptions. And if he's doing this for the sake of the gospel, his one thing, then clearly he can't compromise the gospel message itself. All right? You can't bend so much that it's no longer the gospel of Jesus. So this is not an excuse to make the Christian faith so understandable and acceptable to the world so that you stop believing in the miracles, you stop believing in the authority of the Bible, you don't believe that Jesus is God, um, you don't believe in what the Bible teaches about human sexuality, right? as an excuse to say, well, they're just being all things to all people. No, 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 you, you don't go beyond those boundaries. But this is saying where the gospel is not compromised, where you're not going to fall into sin or lead others to sin, right? on these matters contextualize be all things to all people now early in the 19th century the 1800s uh, china began to open up to the west and so missionaries flooded in but if you understand anything about uh, history back then they came in these missionaries came in on the back of the opium trade and gunboats china was brought to its knees essentially by the colonial powers and so missionaries flooded in but they came in on these gunboats to further the interests of these western trading nations now these missionaries many were well-meaning but because they came in in that context the message the chinese people got were that in order to come to jesus i must become like you i must become western 
And this is terrible because at the time, the West was eating away territories in China, bringing it to its knees. Right? This was not going to make the gospel very acceptable. Now, James Hudson Taylor changed all of that. As he went to China, he saw the missionaries in China were mostly ineffective, well-meaning but ineffective. They spent most of their time with English business people in the coastal port cities acting as translators for diplomats. That's what they spent most of their time doing. All the while, the majority of Chinese people on the inland were not being reached. So what did he do? And as he raised up a generation of missionaries, what did they do? They did something radical. You may know what they did. They became Chinese in order to reach Chinese. They were the first to wear Chinese clothes, deeply learn the Chinese language. And modern missions would never be the same because of that. That's becoming all things to all people. Now, how are we applying this at our church at Southwest? Fresh is one of the ways we try to apply it. You see, if someone is not yet a follower of Jesus, and that might be you, it's actually a pretty big step to come to a service Make a commitment to Jesus, right? That's a pretty big step to take. And so we want to remove obstacles. We want to bring, you into a, bring them into a place where it's not going to be threatening, where you're not going to be wondering, what do I do? Do I stand? Do I sit? Where's the Bibles? You know, what am I hearing? I don't understand this. That The message is over my head. No, no. We want to give them opportunities to absorb, to ask questions, to investigate over a non-threatening sort of cafe-style setting, which is what we've been doing, for Fresh. Right? This is what we're trying to do. And so it's not too late to invite your friends to come to Fresh because there is us doing a bit of contextualization, trying to be all things to all people so that we might see some saved. But I want to say that this is all well and good. And if the only thing we get out of these chapters is this ministry philosophy, contextualization, If that's the only thing we get out of it, unfortunately, we will have missed the heart of it. I want you to see that behind all of this is a key motivation that we must not miss. And it'd be disastrous if we missed it. What is that motivation? Well, you know, we talked about, um, I showed you the video of the Thai cave rescue. You know that same Thai cave um, has, in the past, attracted adventure seekers? In fact, probably now there'll be more people wanting to check it out. And so there'll be people who like canyoning and diving Right? And they're not the first to have gone into the cave, those divers who rescued, because they're, they're hobby divers and divers and hobby adventurers. But you bet, you can bet that in that rescue operation, there were no more people there just to do it for a hobby, right? Because everything was at stake. And only those willing to pay the ultimate price were going to be willing to now venture into those caves. Because not only were their lives at stake, there was the lives of 13 people at stake. It was a rescue operation. So no more adventure-seeking hobby hobby divers, right? It was about rescue. And that's what motivated people. Now, why am I telling you that? If we only learn from 1 Corinthians 9 about mission principles, you'll only become a hobby evangelist. You might be really great at answering tough questions. You might be really great at contextualizing. You might be able to bring a bunch of people to fresh because you just have that personality. But if that's all you are, then you are just a hobby evangelist. Do not miss that Paul is motivated by one thing. He wants to see souls saved. Did you catch that? He wants to see people saved. 
This is for him a life or death rescue operation. Because here's the thing, hobby divers will never make the ultimate sacrifice unless they're just being stupid. And we will never make the sacrifices necessary if we're we're just hobby evangelists. If we're happy to idly watch people headed to hell and not be deeply moved from the core. We've got to catch that motivation. You've probably heard of the drought in New South Wales and Queensland. Farmers are saying it is the worst in living memory. This morning I came across an article that says scientifically, study of weather patterns, it could be the worst in 400 years. I don't know how they work that out, but it sounds pretty bad. You read about farmers having to kill their livestock, thousands of sheep because there's just no feed, and rather than watching them starve to death. Heard about people living on the land, farmers and their families going broke. And here's the thing, I don't know about you, but I was only made aware of this in the last two weeks. Yeah? Isn't that strange? The media has only made me... It may be happening for months, perhaps years, this drought. But we're only just aware of it. I mean, maybe I noticed that land prices were going up, right? I've only just become aware of it, while farmers are now really desperate, really struggling. One town has enough water to last until November. And we're only just becoming aware of it. Well, I want to let you know that there is a spiritual drought across the world. And it is far more dire and far more desperate than the drought in New South Wales and Queensland, as important as that is. Do you realize that billions of people are living life without God and therefore without real hope? And even as I speak, thousands are dying daily. Millions are dying daily, actually. Thousands are dying by the minute. Propelled all of a sudden into a godless eternity and they don't have a savior. And people are all around us, your neighbors, your friends, your family members are going to hell. And I wonder if you're aware of that. And I wonder if we deeply care about that. Now, just a quick aside, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the idea of hell might seem very confronting or even a bit offensive to you. It's not the time to address it in full, but can I just say that Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else. Jesus, who is about love, actually spoke about hell. And in fact, because of his love, he came to rescue us from hell by dying for us and going to hell in our place. So even if you don't believe it, can I just say your Christian families and friends are motivated by their love for you and they actually want to see you become a Christian so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. And and maybe in light of that, you'd be willing to come to something like Fresh and find out more. But my prayer is that we would make Paul's one thing into the one thing that is for us. That we would not go idly by while this spiritual drought is going on and people are headed by the billions into hell and not be aware of it and not do anything about it. See, contextualization, being all things to all people, is just the beginning I want to say, and my third point, it ought to change everything that we do. So let me mention a couple of things. Your family and your friends, and we've all got them, they are lost without Jesus. Do you know that? They're headed to an eternity of hell without Jesus. Do you know that? Do we really care? Because if we do, then maybe we will see that we are in their life and they are in our lives For one reason, first and foremost, 
I mean, other reasons are there, but the most important reason, God put you in their life, put them in your life so that you might be a bridge to share the hope of Jesus to them. Do you see it like that? Now, if like me, your heart grows cold and indifferent to people's plight, people's salvation, then maybe today the call is just to repent. Don't we need to do that as a church? Repent that we've just grown cold. That we've even stopped praying desperately. We need to ask God to light that fire again. Now, how you do that, when you do that, what's the wisest, most loving? Well, that will follow if you get the motivation right. Okay? Our friends and families are there for you to be a missionary to them. So you've got to work out what does it mean for me to be all things to all people, to reach the different kinds of friends, family members, perhaps even parents, grandparents, siblings, children. How do I do that Right in a way that's not going to hinder the gospel? It's going to be different in different situations. I'll let you work it out. I'll let you talk about it. But let me just say this. You can't do that without spending significant time with them. Right? You just can't. If you're not in their world, if you're not sharing your life with them, if you're not getting to know their ways of thinking, um, if you come from a family of people who aren't Christians, if you're never at home, it's going to be very hard to do that, right? If you never get together with them. And you can't do this with friends and neighbors and colleagues if you have only one dimension of relationship with them. You only work with them. You only say hi over the fence to them. You only go to school with them. All right? You've got to actually increase your one dimension of a relationship into two or three dimensions. Try and get to know them outside of that one dimension. That takes time and energy. That will take sacrificing your own priorities and comforts. Right? But know this, people increasingly will not just walk into church when you invite them. You've got to go out to them. You've got to build bridges to them. So will you, your friends and family? What about your work and ambition? I want to say this one thing puts what you're doing now into perspective, doesn't it? Now, study and work is important. It is part of our worship for God. But eternity is also just around the corner. And so the Bible says there is a new kind of work. It calls the work of the Lord. That if you're a follower of Jesus, no matter what your age, you're to be involved in. What's the work of the Lord? The work of the Lord is seeing people saved and mature as disciples of Jesus. That's it, right? The work of the Lord is seeing people come to know Jesus and mature as disciples of Jesus. And so your studies and your work, and even if you're unemployed, even if you're retired, it needs to take second place to that, doesn't it? If you really understand the desperate plight of people who don't know Jesus, Everything takes second place to that. In fact, your studies and your work, even your retirement, even your unemployment, all of it can serve that. Did you know that? That you can bring your talents and your gifts and your opportunity and your money and your time, all that your study and work and retirement, whatever stage of life brings, you can bring all of that to serve the work of the Lord. Have you ever thought of that? Now, what does it look like? Well, it's going to be different in different situations. I'm just going to embarrass a few people and name them. I'm sorry. I'm going to say your name. But I'll tell you where I see it. These are just some examples. I see Faye. You guys know Faye? Volunteering hours every week, pouring her accounting skills into serving our church as an assistant accountant. She does all the books. 
all the reconciliations, all the financial reports. It's hours of work every week. She does it. It's free. I see Anthony, who's a uni student. He's filling his time while he's at uni. I mean, he's doing really well at uni, but you know what? He's faculty leading at his university group. He's serving on conferences. He's leading youth group. He's going on conferences to explore future mission work that God might be calling him to. I see Elaine, who every couple of Friday nights, will, every two weeks, will host a bunch of non-Christian mums from her neighborhood who go to, whose kids go to school with her kids. Right? Come along to my place, come along to her place, sorry, so that she can share the gospel with them, so that she can teach their kids the Bible. She does that. She uses her house, her opportunities, her relationships. I see singles and empty nesters, lots of you guys, and because you're not as tied down financially, you're giving huge amounts of money for the work of the gospel. And you do it because you've learned to live with less. So you're willing to give more. I see high schoolers. There's a great thing about being in high school. You can ask friends, and it's not just asking one or two friends. You can ask a bunch of friends. Right? High schoolers have that kind of relationship. And so they're asking groups of friends. I know people who've asked a whole class to come to Rice with them, to hear the gospel. Not afraid to stand up for Jesus, speaking about Jesus even though they're so young. That's what I see. And so I want to ask you, whoever you are, wherever, are you willing to make the work of the Lord your one thing? The one most important thing that you study for, that you work for, that you save money for, that you spend your free time on, that you retire in order to do more of. Let me finish with a quote by Hudson Taylor. China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything. And at every time, even life itself must be secondary. When we get ready to sing, the band come up. And let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask 